Up next is a special bonus episode featuring an interview of Daily Show contributor Jordan Klepper, conducted by Matt Wilstein, senior writer of The Daily Beast and host of the podcast The Last Laugh. Today's guest literally risks his life going to Trump rallies just to make the rest of us laugh. On the day Donald Trump most likely contracted COVID at an event in the Rose Garden, he hosted another slightly different kind of super spreader event, a campaign rally. These rallies are a known vector for spreading many of Trump's favorite lies. So I traveled to the battleground state of Pennsylvania to see just how many people had caught Trump's version of reality. I'm here at a Trump rally in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We are weeks away from the election, months away from finding out who wins and probably about a year away from losing a loved one to the inevitable civil war. Let's do this. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and I am so excited to welcome Jordan Klepper back on my podcast this week. Jordan was one of our earliest guests on The Last Laugh. We talked in person in New York City last spring, but I really wanted to have him back on during these final few weeks before the election because he has just absolutely been crushing his Trump rally field pieces for The Daily Show. I had so many questions for Jordan about how he pulls off these incredibly cathartic confrontations with the most embarrassing Trump supporters he can find. And lucky for us, he was willing to reveal almost all of his secrets. Jordan also talked about his own bout with the coronavirus early in the pandemic and shared his most optimistic hopes for a post-Trump America. All right, here we go. This is me with Jordan Klepper. So it really does feel like it's been a very long time since our last conversation in New York. And I I wanted to have you back on just because I've been obsessed with your pieces that you've been doing for The Daily Show from the Trump rallies. Just it's kind of incredible what you've been able to do despite everything. So, yeah, I wanted to talk about that. And if people haven't heard our our original interview, um, I encourage everyone to go back and that will have more sort of about your background and and how you got to this place. But I really want to focus on on what you've been doing over the past year, just because it's it's been crazy. Well, I'll definitely be making references to things I referenced in the past interview. So like you can enjoy this if you're just hearing this interview, (laughs) but you'll really get the full totality of this experience if you listen to the other one and understand who I am and the the small little peccadilloes that I I sprinkle throughout this next conversation. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, just enjoy both is what I say. Exactly. You got the time. I know you (laughs) do. So yeah, I mean, I guess just to go to go back to a little bit to how you kind of started this whole Trump rally journey that you've been on. Um, you started doing this in 2016 at his rallies, right? What do you remember about sort of the first one that you that you went to? I believe it was in New Hampshire, and I remember it being cold. You know, at, at that point, I, I think back, nobody knew what the Trump phenomenon was going to be. He was popular and he was up at the time, but we didn't know how legitimate he was. And if I recall, it was January. I was outside some arena of sorts. New Hampshire, I'm guessing it was a hockey arena. 
And the big, the big difference and the big thing I noticed over the course of those initial like six months of coverage was like those early rallies, people were very excited about Trump. People were, they started to adopt the gear and the attitudes, but the bar for what you were willing to divulge on camera shifted over the course of those six months. I often think back of birtherism and I remember getting on the road and talking to people and that was, even if you were a birther and you didn't believe Barack Obama was born in America or an American citizen, that wasn't the kind of thing you shared on camera. And so you'd go to rallies and I remember like occasionally somebody would bring that up and you'd be like, oh wow, somebody's divulging something that's definitely on the fringe. Six months later, seven out of 10 people were <laughs> divulging that Barack Obama wasn't born in this country. And then there, then, you know, and then the other three were talking about how he was the one who bombed the World Trade Center. So you, <laughs> you noticed at the beginning, people were like, what can we say? That was January. And by the end, the answer was anything you want. Yeah. And that was because they were being given permission by Trump to say it, right? Exactly. I mean, I, I think I felt that at the time. You know, there was still this this idea if Hillary won, that things would go back to normal to some degree. But I think he really gave permission for people to show that ugly side. And I think you saw that up front. It was like, oh, there is permission that it's no longer something to be uh, ashamed of. If you really doubt that the first African-American wasn't born in this country, that was something that at least people who harbored bias and perhaps racial animosity also harbored shame in the mass culture. But <laughs> but when you have the guy on stage who gets voted in saying, oh, you don't need to have shame about that. In fact, you can use it as a weapon. Suddenly that came out in the open and Pandora's box was open. So even if Hillary had won, I don't think it would have been that easy to close that box. Right. Just as it won't be that easy to close if Joe Biden wins, but we'll, we'll, yeah, get, we'll I, get to I that think <laughs> Things will change, but things don't go back to normal. There was no normal. I think he, he, ex he exploded what people thought and he changed what people could say. And you know, the upside of that is there, there's not a whole lot of stuff that's being hidden anymore. The downside of that is there's not a whole lot of stuff that's being hidden anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the culmination of that shamelessness probably came with the, the Access Hollywood tape. And I remember you did one piece right after that, sort of with everybody reacting to it. Um, and I think that was this moment where we all thought, oh, yeah, this I think this is going to be it. This is going to be the thing that's a bridge too far. And they were like, you know two Republican Congress people who were upset about it. And then, but you really went to the rally and got, I think what we hadn't seen to that point, which was people saying, oh no, this is no big deal at all. And, and defending it outright and, you know, um, not being ashamed of that. So were you surprised by that one when you went there and, and got those kind of reactions? You know, I was, to begin with, I was surprised. And then you became pretty normalized to it. I think what the whole purpose behind Figures of the Pulse as it, as it started out was exactly that. Like, let's, let's, Let's go there. Let's see what people actually believe. Where is the needle? And is, is it moving? And I remember specifically with the Access Hollywood tape, like what was shocking was the backflips people would do to protect the identity they already had with Donald Trump. And, you know, the media wanted to say like, well, we know politics. We know that once you cross this line, you're, well, you're going to lose the electorate. But when you went to these events, these weren't political auditions. These were not discussions about the ideologies and the ways in which to come through on the basic conservative tenets. They were rock shows. They were football tailgates. And yeah, maybe your team lost last week, or maybe your star quarterback did something awful and is uh, in jail for uh, domestic assault. But you have a game next week. And guess what? Most of those people still show up. They're still wearing the uniforms, and they've concocted an excuse as to why why that thing that happened, which we can agree is bad, 
but doesn't discount the thing that is already there. And so that is, it, it's truly a testament to American creativity, the way in which we can change our belief systems to keep us cordoned off from having to completely change who we are and who we might vote for. And I think that was the, the Trump genius is people identified themselves with him. He was the underdog then. He was the person who was speaking for them. And as, as silly as that sounds for a so-called billionaire from New York coming to the middle of Iowa and saying, I speak for the average man. He was an underdog who who definitely spoke for people who felt like they weren't being listened to in some degree. And so Access Hollywood comes out and an American ingenuity comes through and they find ways in which to excuse that. At which point you're like, oh, there isn't, there isn't a line that we will hit. Even the popular vote isn't gonna stop this. This is sort of how it is. I hitched a ride to a rally in the crucial swing state of Pennsylvania to ask Trump supporters if he had finally crossed the line. You know what? So what if he wants to grab pussy? I want to grab pussy. That's a no. I wish I could grab as much pussy as he has. Well, I'd like to grab a cater by the pussy and shove some Yankee Doodle Dandy right up its ass. Also a no. But how are they okay with a presidential candidate bragging about sexual assault? Wait for it. I think it's just locker room talk. There's really what does that mean? Guys in the bar talk that way when they see a pretty girl. What are you going to say? I've heard worse about men talking about girls, women, so... Are, they, are you talking about other like presidential candidates like Mondale? Or yes. Did you feel like those experiences in 2016 going to the rallies gave you any more insight into how the election would turn out? Were you less surprised than other people, do you think? I, you know, I was I was not at all surprised by the fervor and the excitement for Donald Trump, the vitriol for Hillary Clinton. The one thing I didn't have was perspective. You know, I, I went to a bunch of rallies, but it's really hard to have perspective of how, what are we at now, 220, 270 million Americans? You have no sense as to like, is this, it was what I'm looking at in accurate snapshot or is this anecdotal here? And so, yeah, the, the polls I saw, the things I heard make it sound like this is exciting to a lot of people. And I think he is very popular, but this is something that America never rewards at a general election. So I, I was surprised. I didn't think it would turn out that way, but I was not surprised that people were excited Donald Trump could or should be president. Yeah. So now that you've been going to these rallies this cycle, is there any difference? Is there a, is there a feeling that there's a different level of excitement or any anything that you've noticed different between 2016 and 2020? Sure. Well, it's hard to keep the party going with 200,000 dead. Right. But you'd be surprised. People still show up drunk. Uh, <laughs> it's more of a wake now, I think, is, is what these rallies have turned into. I went to one a, a week and a half ago, and there's still the excitement there. There is also one level of people literally have to get their temperature checked as they go in so they can't be completely naive to the reality around them. It's still the concert. It's still a tailgate party. But there's a slight difference there. I, I compare it to going to see the Spin Doctors for the first time. And you might have loved <laughs> the Spin Doctors when they came out and got their album and seeing them perform live was quite the experience. And you might be a Spin Doctors fan for the rest of your life, going to shows every time they come around to your town. But four years later, playing the same songs, the same courses you had before, you're telling yourself you're excited. You still got the t-shirt. You might buy a new t-shirt, but they don't have any new hits to sing. And so there's a little bit of a, you're grinning through more clenched teeth, I would say. And again, I don't want to downplay the excitement at those rallies, but it's not fresh anymore. That, that stuff's four years old and build that wall. It doesn't quite ring with the, the power it did four years ago. 
Yeah, there's only so many times you can hear a pocket full of kryptonite. <laughs> and again, that number is high. No, it's a good song. Ve- it's a good song. Yeah. To be very clear, uh, give me a hundred, a hundred <laughs> times. But yeah, I, in going again, like I was like, oh, this is, people are excited. There were smaller numbers. <laughs> again, partially because you could die going to these now, but there's also a different feeling than there was before. Uh, and there's a little bit of desperation I, I, I see in the air. Since my last Trump rally, there have been roughly 37 Marvel movies and one very combative impeachment trial. But what else has changed? So what's new this season? Um, everything, honestly. We got this uh, Baby Yoda shirt. Great America keep. Well, I get it. It sounds like something Donald Trump would say. Or Yoda, I suppose they have very similar syntax. We're not all great speakers. Do you have any Trump that bitch? You don't have Trump that No. Anything that's at all aimed at women? Not for women, at women. What are you hoping for tonight? I'm hoping Donald Trump is just in a good, in a, we're in a good place of mind right now. I hope he talks about immigration. So you're hoping for a build a wall? I'm hoping for a wall. Uh-huh. Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to pay for it? I say that's what we're going to find out about. It's either going to be taxpayer money. Oh, so maybe that's the chance. Who's going to pay for it? That's what we're going to find out about. Yep. Yeah, I mean, speaking of risking your life to go to Trump rallies, I mean, that's something that you're dealing with and your crew and the everyone who's who's going is really has to think about this in a different way than you did six eight months ago so how does that manifest and how do those how do you decide that it's worth it to to risk your life to go make comedy at a trump rally well you know i'm i'm a hero i'm a hero first (laughs) comedian second so it's always worth it to risk my life Uh, no safety is is first us at the daily show and for comedy central and viacom in general when all this went down you know the goal was for us to be safe and we were creating content from home. I was talking to people who were who were locked away. I did a doomsday preppers piece. I did Zoom interviews with the head of the FEC. Like we were trying to find content and ways to tell these stories while also being responsible. And as these rallies started to happen again, and as also the media started going out and covering those, we looked at how could we get out there? Because we were curious. I want to get out there. I want to do these pieces. I want to talk to people, but I want to do it safely. And so there are very clear protocols. The first piece I went back out there on, I literally, there had to be a body of water between me and the people we talked to. Yeah, the, so we the went boat to rally. A, <laughs> went to the boat rally and I comedically talked to somebody on another boat. That's both a comedically brilliant choice, but it's mostly uh, legally the only way we could talk to people was with plexiglass in between us, even with masks on, and a body of water between us. And then this last rally I went to, we're tested beforehand. Everybody who goes out there, we're socially distanced. We're limiting the number of people who can be in cars and vehicles together. And we go with a uh, COVID compliance officer who is with us watching the way we interact with people. We're 10 times more prepared than the commander who chief who shows up <laughs> eight hours later. Because <laughs> we want to be safe. Again, it's it's not worth that risk. I think it's really important to talk to the folks there. And I'm really proud of the pieces that we do. And the show wants to be a part of that conversation. But most importantly, we need to be responsible. It also doesn't take much to be responsible. You know, there's a lot of steps you can go through. But I think what is frustrating is to see like, you can do this. In fact, half of the people I talked to who weren't wearing masks had masks on them who were ready to put them on if only the the guy who arrived later would say yeah put that thing on it might save some lives they would do it but it must be frustrating for you to talk to these people and have them you're you're wearing a mask in this last one but they're not and it's very 
deliberate on their part, I think. It's very deliberate. It was politicized right from the get-go. It's us versus them. And I think he's created a culture where that is the case. How do we differentiate ourselves from the other folks? But again, he makes everybody, everybody wear a stupid red hat. Nobody looks good in red. Nobody looks good <laughs> in red. Especially people who are white. White skin with red, it never looks good. Not a great look. It brings out the ruddiness. And I hate to say it, that's the fan base. But he's got everybody <laughs> wearing red. The worst color on everybody. He could get everybody wear a, a face mask. I was surprised. We we sort of expected to go out there and people would have uh, thought face masks were a, a hoax and uh, you didn't need to wear it. It wasn't a thing. That wasn't the case a week and a half ago. That was two months ago's story. Now people have changed. Oh, no, it's a thing. It's not a hoax. It's very real. Oh, yeah, a face mask, they help. I have one. It's in my pocket. I don't need to wear it because I've been told that you don't need to wear it to these events. And so, mm -hmm. again, the same logic that uh, was defending the Access Hollywood tape is the same logic that's making it okay to purchase and carry a mask to a Trump rally. That same logic could be utilized to protect people as well. And yet again, you have a selfish person in charge who doesn't wield the easiest thing he could to wield and save lives because it, it works better for him to use it to make an us versus them situation. It's truly tragic. I kind of want to dig in a little bit to sort of how you prepare for these from a comedic perspective in terms of the process. So before you arrive, what what kind of preparation are you doing to to go in there and, and talk to people? We can use this last one as an example, maybe. Well, so for this last one, so right now... I tend to go out with a field producer, which is how Daily Show does field pieces. But I've been paired with Ian Berger, a field producer I worked with um, back at The Daily Show. I worked with at The Opposition and at Klepper. And now we're back working together again with The Daily Show. And we do all of the rally pieces together. And so essentially, Ian and I will, for this last one, look at a potential event we could go to. Usually we come up with a take or a question that we want to broach when we get there. The way the news shifts now, we we tend to be much looser with that because what happens in the morning could change in the afternoon. And so we, we go out with a handful of ideas and questions that we have that we think will be curious there. Ian and I, and usually another uh, person from The Daily Show, a, a writer, will get on a phone call, we'll Zoom call, and we'll sort of have a conversation, talk about like, what are we expecting? What do we want to know? Comedically, what might be some angles that we could go into? What are things we've heard people talk about? You can only prep so much for these field pieces. They're inherently improvisational. They're very much conversations and they live and die on how well you're listening. But I am prepping by having some of those conversations beforehand, thinking through ways in which we can logically walk through it and potential avenues for comedy uh, in my back pocket. So we'll, we'll, we'll show up with a few pages of ideas that E and I will have like talked through on a car ride in or a phone call the day before. Some things that if we don't get anything, we might be able to film there just straight to camera. We always end up getting stuff, but you then arrive sort of having thought through what could happen. You walk in out there and, and again, 90% of the stuff you talked about is not applicable. You're like, well, that assumption was totally wrong. People don't think this. I thought nobody's, everybody was going to be anti-mask. Nobody was going to be wearing masks. Oh, there were a few masks and people weren't anti-mask. Okay, we're not even going to go down that anymore. Uh, Supreme Court, for example, we prepped and we talked about like people are going to really want to talk about abortion here because he was literally announcing a Supreme Court pick hours before. People didn't care about that. A few folks w wanted to get into how excited they were about the Supreme Court pick, but that was not 
the topic of the day for most of the people there. So you let go of that as well. Because I am an improviser at heart, and I think these things work best when you aren't encumbered with jokes you think you need to make, and you're more so listening to the things that are said. There's inherent contradiction that's stumbling out of most of the people you're talking to, and half of the humor comes from playing, if you will, logic games or simply asking follow-up questions to try to get underneath that thing that they've heard and now are replaying to you, but you actually get to interact with them. Like, that's the comedy. So in a, in a nutshell, it's a lot of prep work to uh, prepare yourself for the what-ifs, and then you let yourself just be free in that moment to respond earnestly with <laughs> the whys and the hows. Yeah, I, I saw you said somewhere else that you think people don't really listen to what you're saying and more are responding to your either physical cues or the, um, you know, the tone that you're using. Does that Has that been pretty consistent throughout that you feel like it, it's not as... The, the way the part of the comedy comes out of the fact that they're not really hearing what you're saying. Well, I think Americans in general often don't listen very well. So as a comedian, you can really take advantage of that. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think like uh, there's a lot going into it, not to over overanalyze these moments, but physicality. They're already judgmental of people who have cameras in front of them. They see me from a distance and they're going to make assumptions as to whether or not I'm somebody that they want to divulge what they actually believe in to. Or are they going to be uh, put up uh, defenses? And so part of that is the questions you ask. Part of that is the way you carry yourself. I tend to be a pretty open kind of person and approachable. And I, yeah, I think a lot of people will listen to tone and not listen to words. And so sometimes you get people because you're like, that person's agreeing with me, so I will go farther. It's the idea of yes and. If you can make somebody feel like they're on the same page with you, they're going to offer you one more thing. And so, yeah, we employ that as we go out there. Make somebody feel comfortable so they can reveal themselves to you. How often do you feel like somebody knows that you are from The Daily Show or even recognizes you from these videos that you've been doing? It varies. I'm recognized there by some, and for some people that's enticing. They want to engage. As much as people think the news is fake news and they don't like people with cameras, you'd be surprised how many people flock to a camera. And so if I'm that guy from The Daily Show or that guy from YouTube or just that guy, you will get people who are like, hey, I, I got a thing to say to you. And sometimes that will be a drunk person who will follow you around for 10 minutes screaming at you. <laughs> and you try to move around and you can't lose him. That happens. Sometimes it's the person who's like, I got a thing to say. Will you talk to me about this? And I say, sure, let's chat. Uh, more often than not, though, we are in these bubbles and those videos haven't necessarily made its way into that bubble. So I'm just some guy with a camera that they want to talk to about an experience. I mean, the thing that I'm always so curious about with these uh, Daily Show field pieces and, you know, what people like Sasha Baron Cohen do or, or any of these people who are going out and interacting with real people is you then do have to get some sort of permission to use them on the show, right? Mm -hmm. And does that ever get tricky in, in terms of people willing to you know, sort of knowing that they might end up getting embarrassed in some way? Americans want to be on television and, and they want their voices heard. So when they see a camera, and we're upfront with them, you know, we're not deceitful. They come on up. We say, like, can we talk to you? They're like, great. We're like, before we talk to you, we need you to sign permission that we can use this on television. And we give them a, a sheet that they can read and they sign and then we have a conversation. So yeah, there, there, there's a legal process to all of this uh, that we are very upfront about. But people, again, they're, they're willing to talk. And also the irony that perhaps some people see in the videos that I and The Daily Show make is not necessarily an irony or a reality that those folks see either. I think the guy who, to, who I talked to in the last rally, who was like, I'm not, 
I'm not a sheeple. And that's a term he uses. I'm a lion. I'm not a sheep. I won't be a sheeple. And I ask him why he's not wearing a mask. He's like, I'll totally wear a mask if I see everybody wearing a mask. But I'm not going to just put on a mask because I should. I'm not a sheeple. To me, I hear irony. (laughs) I, I see contradiction. To him, he does it at all. He sees ideology and that he's not a sheeple. And that's something I'm sure it's a t-shirt he saw at some point. But he also (laughs) sees logic of like, oh, of course, if the people I agree with do something, I'm going to follow them, but I'm not a follower. And so oddly enough, I think you could show some of these videos to a lot of the folks who who are in them and they wouldn't see it as um, a gotcha moment. They would see it as vindication of the point of view they already have. You're pro-life. Of course. It's important for Americans to do whatever they can to protect a human life. Yes. Why aren't you wearing a mask? I mean, again, it's a personal choice, I think. If everybody was wearing them and everybody said put a mask on, I would respect everybody's wishes and put it on. Uh-huh. We're not cheap. We're, we're not lines. cheap. We're not cheap. But if everybody here was wearing masks. If everybody was wearing them, but again, we're not cheap. You're not cheap. We're not. So you're going to look at what everybody's doing and you're going to follow That's along. That's it. Yeah. But not cheap. Not cheap. Do you ever hear from these people afterwards that who have been on and, and either are upset about something or, or actually like that they were on or anything like that? This last rally, we didn't get to talk to him because he passed on by, but somebody I talked to in Hershey, Pennsylvania came by and heckled us. I don't think he knew it was us, but he was in our last video <laughs> <laughs> claiming he read the Ukrainian call transcript, which he clearly did not. And he walked by again. I was like, oh, right. A thing people need to know at these rallies, people, you're, I'm seeing people over and over again at these rallies. It's the same people going again and again. A lot of the same people, especially the first few hundred people, they're in RVs, they're traveling around, they're there for the party. And they're not always going in for the speech either. It's like a football team that's losing. You might you might tailgate all day. You might not go to the game because you're drunk by the time the, the game starts and you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. You don't go into the, the arenas to, to actually watch the speech or you, or you have it on occasion or? Well, I tend not to go into it because that's where you catch uh, COVID and perhaps <laughs> die. The Herman Cain rule. It's uh, stay outside if you can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not usually. Originally, we would go to the event outside where we would talk to the rally goers, and then we would go inside as well. After doing that a handful of times, one, they don't let you film much inside. They usually keep you, if you have a camera, they put you in a pen, and then Donald Trump berates you. (laughs) Also, it's really hard to interview people when uh, Macho Man is playing on repeat in the background at full full volume. And so so we found like the purpose of this isn't necessarily the, the chaos that happened inside the rallies, the purpose of it is let's talk to the people who are going and they're showing up 12 hours in advance in a parking lot. You have plenty of time. (laughs) We have plenty of time. We just, we hang out in parking lots for a good 10 hours. And after 10 hours in a parking lot, talking to people about Donald Trump, you're ready to go home. Coming up, Jordan opens up about what his own experience with the coronavirus taught him about the president's seemingly rapid recovery earlier this month. And later, he reveals details about an interview with a drunken Trump supporter that he had to cut from his most recent piece because it was just too sad. Did I read that you actually had COVID at some point over the last uh, six months or was that? Oh yeah, early on. You did? I was way ahead of it. Before it became trendy, <laughs> before it was something that 
half of the people in this country acknowledge that it did exist, I was already on it. it in uh, late March, I caught the symptoms and caught COVID and had to stay home. And I was lucky I didn't have to go to the hospital, but it was a real beast. It was two weeks of feeling like crap. I felt like I got beat up. My symptoms primarily were a little bit of a fever, but then my body just ached like I'd been in a fist fight and I lost the sense of taste. And then my, my wife also got it. And it was, it was a really scary few weeks and the taste didn't come back for a while. And you don't feel great for weeks after that as well. It's scary. And I think a lot of people in New York, you know, I, I, I see these numbers potentially going back up and it's worrisome, but I do think the folks in New York, we went through that scare so quickly and so hard that within a month, like everybody was starting to act like it was, it was good in April and May where you started to see people really wearing masks. And it wasn't just half the folks there. It was most people you see on the streets are taking this seriously, but I was being careful. I, I don't exactly know where I even got it. I was washing my hands and it still, it still got me and it still affected me. And it was, it was, it was really scary for, for a while. So it's no joke. Yeah. And yet, I mean, that's what's so odd about Trump getting it and seeming to recover like four days later completely and out back out on the road and like no problem. I mean, I guess, do you, do you attribute that to the, the treatment that he got or what, what do you think? No, about I, don't, that? I don't trust any of that. The man is a liar. <laughs> I don't, I don't trust the timeline. I, I trust that he's jacked up on steroids. You know, half of these stories is how sick he is. And if, if my experience was you get sick, you feel better and then you feel terrible and fingers crossed you get through it. And so, and, and some people have uh, much, uh, you you know, much fewer uh, symptoms. I don't think we know exactly how tough it was for Trump. I think some of the stories that it got scary for a while, I tend to believe. I'm not surprised that he came out on the other end. He has the worst diet I've ever seen, and I'm sure he'll live to be 127 years old. <laughs> <laughs> that, that tends to be, when you're born with a silver spoon up your ass, you tend to fly by with this stuff. <laughs> but I, I don't doubt he got scared as well, uh, because it, it it's, it's spooky when it hits. Yeah, and yet it did not change his uh, outlook or demeanor in any way. It's surprising. He, he seemed to use it as a weapon to try to get more and more people to think he's a hero. I, I think we've, we've heard that song before. And going out and telling everyone he's immune and that he wants to kiss everyone now has been a pretty weird development in this whole thing. I will say, I talked to my doctor. I got the antibodies and I, I was excited. I took the test. They said, you have antibodies. I was like, great. What does that mean? And my doctor said, I don't know. Yeah, they don't know. It's like, it's like uh, it, it might mean good things. It could mean you don't get it for a little while. It also could mean you're immune for a month or so. But what it really means is you don't change how you act. You still act with caution because we don't know enough. So that's what I was told. But apparently Donald Trump gets different information. This is something that I was just listening to uh, Samantha Bee's podcast and she had Alana Glazer on and they had this really interesting conversation about the moment when they felt their cultural impact sort of outside of themselves and, and what that feels like. And so, for instance, Sam was talking about her whole Ivanka Trump thing and how that kind of blew up beyond what she knew her influence was. And I was curious if you've had a moment like that, whether through this or just in general at The Daily Show or with um, the opposition, where you said, where you kind of all of a sudden realized that you were reaching more people than you than you may have thought. Well, I think, I know Jennifer Aniston retweeted the last video. So <laughs> I do think I've finally broken through. That's big. <laughs> it's huge. That's interesting. I mean, I always kind of see myself as underappreciated. So it's hard to say that I have seen that. Um, I don't know. I, I will say these, these videos where I go to the Trump rallies, 
I, I am surprised at how popular perhaps they are. And, you know, I've done a lot of work and done pieces in the political world, even in the activism world, even with the shows that I've done, where I've got to see an, influ see an influence on a more personal level. I'm shocked at where, like, when I get stopped on the street, nine times out of 10, it's you're that person who does those Trump rallies, goes to those rallies. And, and it will happen in small towns across America. I have friends who are like, who live in England and their friends will talk to them about it. And so it's, it's clearly broken out in that way. And I think if I'm to wrap my head around what that means, I, I do think in some ways I'm providing an avatar for a lot of frustrating people who want to have these conversations and want to retort things that they think are insanity and call out contradiction and call out hyperbole. And, and it does feel like sometimes those videos and those pieces and those, those things I do serve as substitutes for people who don't get a chance to have those conversations. I get to be you at Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, and so I'm happy to do that and, and happy to be a part of that. And it's, it's, it's nice to see that it has, it has reached people in that way. <laughs> but perhaps it's also an example of how far we are from talking to other people who are different from us, that we kind of need to see that uh, in such a way. It's interesting. I mean, you, you go and you really get these, you kind of confirm what our worst suspicions about Trump supporters in a way. And it's kind of the opposite of what I feel like CNN's been doing a lot, which is they go, they try to find the Trump supporters who have totally abandoned him and kind yeah. of like comfort their audience with like, look, see, people, some people have changed. It, it might be okay, but you're really doing the opposite of that. I think you're right. I think you watch these things like, oh, they're, they're crafting the narrative that guess what? The, 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 there is a giant shift over there. I'm not seeing that. I'm sure there are some examples of that. Sure. To me, what interests me is contradiction. I think contradiction is revealing. I've said this before, but I think contradiction reveals the lie that you tell yourself. And I get to go out on these these rallies, and I think I get to see I get to see something true about the American spirit. I think I you see what us as Americans hold on to so dearly, and even when confronted with evidence or logic that makes it all disappear, you still hold on. And so that's what's most interesting to me about it, especially with any of that political writing, any like I'm a giant Hunter S. Thompson fan and, and, and reading Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail or looking back at some of the ways he exposed that, I do think like seeing journalists who are open about their lack of objectivity uh, and telling a subjective experience out on the road to try to get underneath this messy, weird political landscape that has this shine of red, white, and blue, but underneath there's so many machinations that don't often get exposed. And I think I get to do a little piece of that, which is like, let me go out there to that front line and find the contradiction that Americans hold on to so dearly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously last time, last election, everyone was sure Hillary Clinton was going to win. This time, I feel like we're getting to this point where everyone's even more sure that Joe Biden's going to win, um, which is kind of scary. And do you feel like you're going to these rallies has given you any any more insight this time into, into what's going to happen? <laughs> what is your definition of win, I, I, I guess I would say? <laughs> yeah, that's there, true. There's, I don't know. Again, the one thing I don't have is perspective. I go to rallies where people who are most adamant about supporting Donald Trump or want to see the show show up and cheer. I don't think you get much from seeing who has the most uh, lawn signs up in their yard. I don't think being super excited about your candidate is always the healthiest thing. I've <laughs> Ta-Nehisi Coates had a quote about uh, voting for the presidency and said, like, he equates it to taking out the trash. Like, it's something you got to do and you should do, but it's it's not necessarily the totality of your own political experience. And so I <laughs> yeah. think there are Biden 
voters out there who are like, oh, guess what? I No, I don't have Biden hats, Biden shirts, Biden <laughs> stuff. Exactly. But I'm voting for Joe Biden. Uh, but I also have other shit to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which to me is maybe a more informed, healthier voter of like, wait a minute, but uh, where's all this Biden excitement? You're like, guess what? I I think the, the good voter isn't doesn't have time to be that excited. Vote for the poor person who's going to get you closer to the things that you think this country needs and then spend your other time trying to make other good things happen. Yeah, it can be important to you without you being excited about it. Exactly. And so, so just because you're not waving the flag doesn't necessarily mean it's not important and you aren't going to vote. So I think it's it's hard to judge from that. I What I can judge from is the things we've seen in the past is I think Donald Trump's going to make a stink and I think it's going to get messy. I look to how the Mueller report was laid out and he sends his lackey out there to tell you what was in the report for anybody got to read it. And I think when we look ahead at the election, I think that was a dry run. I don't know if they knew it at the time, but I think that's what we're going to see in a few weeks. So I don't know. I don't know what the numbers are going to be. And then even those numbers, they have to be filtered through this archaic thing called the Electoral College. So we get different numbers. And who knows? Maybe that means Joe Biden is the winner. But I I do think we're going to see a lot of spin right off the bat, the spin that we've seen before. And I hope we get to see through it so we actually get to see what the people want. And that gets to get enacted. Expect to do any more uh, field pieces for The Daily Show between now and the election? Or do you have plans? I'd, I'd like to. Right now, we're, we're looking to see uh, what the schedules are for both candidates. And we'd like to get on the road. Again, safety is the number one priority with the show. And so it has to do w- where these events are, if we can be safe, if our crew can be safe. But as this campaign winds down, it'd, it'd be nice to get out there one or two more times and see, <laughs> just see if anything's changed. Mm-hmm. Aside from the COVID risk, have you ever feared for your for your safety or your life in, in these situations in, in field pieces? Well, I, I mean, as a wuss, I'm constantly fearing <laughs> for my, my life. That's, that's just more existential dread. They can get a little heated here and there. And we've had times where uh, four years ago, they made sure that I went out also with the security guard to be there in case things went a little sour. And a few times things would go sour and I would get kind of pulled away. I now go out with two security guards. And I would go out with zero security guards. I'm a big, tough guy. The network says I need to go out with security guards. But (laughs) you never know right now. People get pretty heated. And I will say more often than not, people do want to engage. And and it doesn't get to the point where we're attempting to, to fight one another. Last time, again, people got upset. A guy I talked to didn't like the way we were talking. He was a religious man and wanted to yell at me for being a godless heathen. When I pointed out some of the heathen-like things that uh, Donald Trump had done, he got pretty upset about that. We had to end it early. And he came back and he chased us around. We thought he urinated in his pants and it turned out the beer that he was hiding exploded while he was yelling (laughs) at us. But those are the kinds of events. It usually only gets to that. And I'm also only telling you this to be, to also point out, people are like, oh, you're just cherry picking the things that happened. That was something that happened and didn't go in the piece. There, there, are, there, are, there are crazy religious zealots who are popping beer in their pants that look like <laughs> urination that doesn't make the final cut for a comedy show. So, <laughs> Because it's not funny enough or for some other reason? I think it's also sad. To, to, to be honest, there's stuff that's like, I, we do want it to be reflective of stuff that we see out there. We're looking for humor. I don't want to hide the fact that like we're looking for characters and people who are humorous, for sure. But also sometimes there's rants that are like, this guy, this guy is really sad right here. This guy also, or or incoherent in a way that doesn't make sense to put on television because it's not clean enough what he even was trying to get across. And I think more often than not, the things that don't make television are exactly that. It's conversations that just ramble without 
an understanding of where anybody's coming from. Those are the things that tend to get left on the, the floor. Yeah, but it sounds like there are there have been moments where you actually feel bad for some of these people and maybe don't want to put them on television. Sure, I, 100%. I, I, again, I empathize more so four years ago. The big parade comes to your town, you show up for the big parade. And if you feel like you haven't been on a winning team in life for a while, you hitch your uh, wagon to the underdog. And that was Donald Trump four years ago. Now, four years later, I understand a lot of people bring different things to these candidates. And I do empathize with that. But people didn't know better. And were taken advantage by people who did know better four years ago. People know better now. And so my, my temper is shorter. My fuse is shorter because we've been through four years that I think have been actually pretty consequential for this country. And I think the rhetoric he uses four years ago could have been considered like, that's just talk. And he's not racist for those things. These are just illusions. I think he's been pretty clear. I, there's, there's, one, there's a reason I'm not interviewing Donald Trump, probably because he would say no, but probably <laughs> also because there's nothing revealing about Donald Trump. I don't think he's hiding anything. And so I think it's more interesting to talk to the people at the rallies because they're doing the hard work of, of trying to hide the BS <laughs> into some sort of logic that makes sense inside their head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's imagine for, for a minute that Donald Trump loses the election, kind of recedes into the background, doesn't, you know, becomes a, not a dominant figure in our every second of everyday life. How do you think that affects your comedy career and what you want to be doing going forward? <laughs> Retiring. <laughs> you know, people ask, is Donald Trump good for comedy? No, he's bad for democracy. He's bad for this country and he's bad for original premises. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I think if Donald Trump is no longer a part of the conversation, then comedians get to go back to uh, choosing some of the things they talk about. He is the guy who you have to respond to the him because he's, he's making such a mess and he has the biggest seat at the table and he has the most power. And so I understand why we feel a need to consistently respond to him and, and his wake. But if he is no longer a part of the conversation, which is a big if, <laughs> I don't think he goes away quietly. But if he is, then I look forward to like being able to comment on what else is happening in this country. And also, if you think that we're going to go back to any kind of a normal, American politics rarely gets back to anything that is uh, boring and without something to shake your fist at. So I'm pretty sure there will be something new to uncover. I just look forward to uh, happening on our terms. So the last time you were on, uh, I ended by asking you what the last thing that made you laugh really hard is. If I recall correctly, I think you said it was Tim Robinson's uh, Netflix series, which yep. is... Mm -hmm. Phenomenal. <laughs> this time I want to ask you, when you look back, is there a comedian who has made you laugh harder than anybody else? It could be someone that you've you know, seen perform or someone that you know, or just uh, someone who really has made you laugh the hardest in your life. Yes. I mean, I, I could talk comedy forever, but the, the person that makes me laugh hardest is Steve Coogan. I've been a fan of his forever and his character, Alan Partridge, which again, it might be a surprise. It's not, not overly political, not anything, but it's, it's a character study that to me is so profoundly funny, nuanced, and interesting. And I followed his career. And he's, if, if you don't know Alan Partridge, and you don't know Steve Coogan, what is it, 20 years ago, he did a fake talk show. He's a, a character who's like a, a down and out talk show host. And then he did a sitcom as that character. And then he did a movie as that character. He's done a web series at that, as that character. He just did another new series as that character. I find him consistently funny. It's so layered. It's so thoughtful. And anytime I get down, I flip on, I flip on Alan Partridge and Steve Coogan 
and and it's some of the best writing I've I've ever seen. It, it, it makes me joyous. And I will also plug this: the funniest piece of comedy I've ever ever engaged with is the autobiography, the audio book of Alan Partridge entitled "I Partridge." I will stand <laughs> by that as it's six hours of an audio book oh, wow. that is gosh darn the funniest examination of a hilarious flawed character I've ever seen. That's my joy. <laughs> well, if anyone has six hours to kill, we know what they should do now. <laughs> Do that. Go out and vote. Get a voting plan and then waste six hours on iPartridge. Yeah. While you're waiting in line six hours to vote, you can listen to uh, <laughs> Do <Alan> that. Partridge. <laughs> well, Jordan, thank you so much for, for coming back on the show. And I'm excited to see any pieces you have between now and the election and whatever, you're, whatever you do after that. Pray for me, Matt. I am. I always do. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> All right. Have a good one. You too. Thank you, sir. Be well. Thank you so much to Jordan Klepper for coming back on The Last Laugh. If you haven't been following his work on The Daily Show, I highly recommend you check out all of his Trump rally pieces on YouTube or the Comedy Central app. And hey, how about giving this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts? We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. <laughs>